I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is poet, writer, and editor, Lindsay Ann Baker. Our conversation has been recorded by Zoom. Lindsay Ann Baker is a copy editor for The Atlantic, where she works on web features, poetry published online and in print, podcast copy, promotional materials, social media copy, exclusive newsletters, and more. She also assists in soliciting and selecting poetry for publication online. Prior to her role at The Atlantic, Lindsay served as editor-in-chief of Quest magazine, the nationally distributed flagship print publication of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Lindsay earned a bachelor's degree in news editorial journalism from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln in 2004, and has written and edited for numerous local and national publications. In 2015, she received an individual artist fellowship in literature from the Nebraska Arts Council. Her most recent collection of poetry, titled This is Bad, was published in 2019 by Gibraltar Editions, which publishes contemporary poetry in handmade limited letterpress editions. Lindsay, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. This is an audio medium, and so listeners won't be able to see uh, your book, This Is Bad, which is a real shame uh, and obviously makes me want to encourage them to find a copy to purchase, which they can do at Dundee Book Co., for example, and other fine establishments, because it really is a remarkable piece of art in its own sake. And so I wonder if you wouldn't mind just describing the book itself, how it came to be, and how Gibraltar Editions sort of brought it to life. I met Denise Brady, who um, operates Gibraltar Editions um, and makes the books that the, the public press puts out. She, you know, I have been familiar with her work, had seen some of the books that she makes. Um, all the books that she makes through Gibraltar Editions are, as you said, letterpress. Um, she prints them on, and now I'm not going to get the name. I should have written down the name of the, it's a Vandercook press, I think is what it is. Um, a lot For a lot of the books, she also makes the paper that the books are printed on. She makes the covers and she sews everything together. So they really are, as you said, pieces of art that she creates she had published a book uh, of poems by a friend of mine, Rebecca Roder Shaw. At Rebecca's book release party for that book, Rebecca said to Denise, you know, you should ask Lindsay for some of her poems. And so Denise reached out to me, and this maybe was in 2018, I think, or maybe even earlier, um, and said, do you have any poems that I could take a look at? And typically she will look at someone's manuscript, cut it down to maybe 14 or 15 poems to make the books because there's a lot of time involved. You know, she's setting everything letter by letter um, and also making everything that, you know, goes into the book itself. So it's a lengthy process. So, you know, typically they're kind of small. So 
I had two manuscripts um, and I sent them to her and I said, you know, there was a shorter one that was more of a chat book. And I said, I think this one is probably easier to cut down. But then I have this other collection called This Is Bad that in its way is 50 small poems, but also is kind of one poem with 50 parts. And I said, you know, I don't know how we would cut that down, but if it intrigues you and you have an idea, I'm willing to talk about that. Though I, I was kind of, I didn't know if I wanted it to be broken up. Um, so she looked at both of the manuscripts and had them for a, a while. I ran into her at a reading and she said, you know, I'm still thinking about it, but I think I'm leaning toward this is bad. And I was very excited because this is bad as it was very personal to me. I really like it and I'm proud of it. Um, it's not perfect, but I also like that about it. She said, you know, it would be the longest collection that I've ever published. So we would have to do it a little bit differently um, so that it wouldn't cost a lot of money by the time we were done making it. I really let her make all of the aesthetic choices about the book. We had several meetings and she said, here's what I'm thinking. And it was really interesting to me as a poet because I do look at this book as more a work of Denise's art than a book of my poems. My poems, you know, inspired this piece of art. So it was interesting to me to see how someone interpreted what was happening in that book in a visual way. Or, you know, I think even in a tactile way, like the size of the book, you know, it's kind of a narrow, like more of a pocket size book, which I really liked because I felt like it's something that you could keep close to you, you know, in your jacket. Um, and that was really so much of the sense of the book to me itself. Um, it's a very, the poems are very, they exist in an interior world. You know, she decided on the size, the color of the paper. Um, and then she also, um, in several of the books that she's made, well, I don't know if it's in every book, maybe. They all have involved some art, visual art. And so she wanted to reach out to Kim Darling, who used to be based in Omaha for a lino cut that's in the book. And so she asked me, you know, how I felt about a piece from Kim. And I said, I think that would be great. The whole process from the time that, you know, we decided to move forward with the project to the time it was published, I think was two years. Denise printed, I think 80 of these books. And as you said, there are some still available. I think it's really beautiful. And it's so wild to me, even looking at it now, that someone made this out of things that I wrote. That's just, you know, I think when you're a writer, you know, you always, hope that the work gets published. And I think you have an idea of what that's gonna be. And this is not the thing that you are thinking of all the time. And I think it's so special and it makes the work, I think more true to what the work is even trying to do because it has this very personal aspect about it that you can see and you can feel. It gives, a like, like I said, a tactile element to the work. So, so before we talk about the content, it looks like two of the poems did have titles when they were published elsewhere, but the 50 poems are just numbered throughout the book. W was that a deliberate choice? And if, if so, how did that originate? 
Yeah, that was, it ended up being a deliberate choice. So when I started writing the poems that ended up forming this collection, I didn't know that I was writing a collection. Um, it was kind of this weird time. I had been diagnosed with Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune thyroid disease. Sometimes it can affect only the tissues around your eyes, or sometimes it can affect only your thyroid, or sometimes it can affect both, which is what happened in my case. And you know, that was sort of going on. And I was sort of in between like writing projects. And I started a Tumblr, which I don't know if that's even like this dates me. I'm getting old now. Um, it's like the last hip thing I knew about because I don't know anything about TikTok, Snapchat, nothing. Um, but I started this Tumblr and I just was writing these small things and some of them were prompts. I was in a writing group at the time and every week when we met someone would bring in a random prompt and it would be something I remember one time one of the greatest ones was like something that someone brought in it was like a piece of mail that was about something that was enclosed or just like filling in a line or whatever and we would start with those sorts of things and so I would put those on the tumblr and they would just have the little title like sometimes the title was whatever the prompt was um, or I would just put something there and so when I got a couple of them published I used those titles but then at some point I realized that all of these things I was writing went together and at that point I just put them all together in the project and it seemed to make more sense to me just to number them but this is bad was what the title of the very first poem the collection originally was. And I felt that it sort of encapsulated that experience and that period of my life. You know, when you think about dealing with a serious illness or something that is difficult, it was sort of like, well, this is what bad looks like. So there's a backstory to this, and, and one part of that is your experience with the physicality of that disease. But I've also heard you talk about, as well, you're just living a life like anybody else, and you're uh, moving you know, out of relationships, into relationships. The poems are sort of charting this journey. In some way, it feels to me as if it's addressing issues of what we control in our life and what we don't. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking a little more about some of the themes that you were trying to confront and explore. And if in confronting those themes, uh, you whether emotionally or physically found some sort of healthy healing catharsis. 
Absolutely. Um, so I also have a neuromuscular disease that I live with called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, which affects my limbs um, and my ability to walk um, and use my hands. And also after Graves' disease, I ended up being diagnosed with type one diabetes. So I've had a lot of things happen within my body that are not really within my control. I can respond to them um, and I can try to do my best to take care of those things now that I know about them or as things happen. But, you know, we live in this sort of dual world of our body where there are things that we can control in the physical world. We, you know, can make choices about where we're moving and sitting down and walking and driving and doing things. But there's a whole internal part of our bodies that is operating without any of our direction. And I think, you know, at the time when I had been diagnosed with Graves, I had already been diagnosed with CMT. And so I'd already had some difficulty just in moving around day to day. But Graves was kind of different because it was affecting my face um, and just the, you know, what my face looked like. It's possible for Graves to kind of change every day. And so some days your eyes may be bulgier um, because of what's happening to the tissue around them. And some days they might be less so. So every day I would wake up and I wasn't going to know what I was going to look like that day, or at least that's how it felt to me. And at the same time, as you said, like I was in my twenties and I was in love with a lot of boys and I was going on dates and I was writing and I was very active in the writing community. I was kind of just meeting and getting to know people and making friends. And that was very exciting and felt like I had found a place to belong and I wanted to explore all of those things. And so I think in the poems, there's kind of this divide between, you know, what is happening within us that we can't control and what we can control and how we sometimes lean very far into what we can control when we're faced with something that we can't. So I think that, you know, I made some choices or I wrote about making choices that I was doing that, or that I made to do with my body in a physical way with other people and experiencing that because it felt like this is a way that I can have control over what's happening in my life right now. I did a lot of Never did I give in Just cause the thought of being vulnerable Made me feel less than I am I have never felt home Till you entered
There is, and maybe this is too intimate, I don't know, but this is something I felt like I was noticing in the book. There's a lot of reference to sort of the body and body parts and how the body is responding. But one aspect that really seemed to um, surface several times in several poems was the mouth. And I'm wondering what it is or what it was about the mouth that was sparking the poems that, that you wrote about. I mean, I think anytime... I think about writing, I think about it in terms of what do we have to say and what are we not saying? I mean, a lot of what I am interested in exploring in poetry is the things we don't say out loud and what we don't want to say, because I'm very interested in the boundaries that we put around our behavior and our conversations, because if we really went around every day saying everything that we really thought to everyone all the time in every situation, we wouldn't be able to function in society. And I think that's so curious that we, you know, I think that's true of everyone. You know, we have to figure out how to be appropriate and what that even means and how that changes based in, you know, whatever relationship or situation you're in. You know, to me, I think, it's about learning how to control your mouth and how to, you know, use that in effective ways. But I think we also, I mean, in terms of intimacy, you know, when we're together, um, when you think about how we use our mouths in that sense, you know, we are also really inviting in risk in that way. I mean, particularly, I think when we think about the pandemic and we think about the coronavirus, you know, that's, we have to cover up our mouths when we are around each other, because that's how that is moving from one person to another, you know, it's this place where vulnerability is a constant. And so, you know, when we're in intimate situations with partners, we expose ourselves in that way. And so I think there's a lot of vulnerability in that and what we are accepting from other people through our mouths and you know what we are giving back um, and what we're giving of ourselves when we focus on that area. There are challenges we've all faced um, because of the pandemic. Um, I think there are challenges that perhaps people that are immunocompromised have differently than people that aren't immunocompromised. And we all have our own responses to the pandemic. That being said, I wonder if you felt slightly ahead of the game, having processed you know, some of these issues that I was reading about you know, in the Sunday New York Times, like how do you date in a world where you are masked? And I, I wonder if you felt as if, you, oh, I've, I've already processed that. I, I've written about that in my poetry. <laughs> you know, dating specifically, is tough and at any time and you know sucks all the time um but yeah i mean as an immunocompromised person in the pandemic part of me i mean i also had to stop driving in 2016 because shagam tooth causes foot drop so i can't bend my ankles anymore and thus i can't drive a car so i was already used to being at home and i felt like well i'm kind of primed i've um, experienced what it is like to need to stock up on things and to 
be at home for days at a time. I work remotely from home, so I'm kind of set up. Um, but then I realized I actually was really busy, even though I didn't really think about it in that way. But when I didn't have events that I could go to and there weren't really people coming over because when you have diabetes, getting even if you get a regular cold or a paper cut, all of that takes longer to heal. And so I was nervous and have been because also I'm alone and because I don't drive, I rely on a network of assistants who help me accomplish things. And if I get COVID, I don't wanna expose any of those people to COVID so I wouldn't have any of my assistants. And then I'm asking myself, okay, how am I gonna take out the trash? So I maybe had to respond with more caution than I would have. And I really had to think about just these basics of, every day. And so dating, you know, I had a few Zoom dates. It's hard, I think, because even when you are dating in person, you are trying to figure out when you get to a place where you have enough trust with someone that you can be vulnerable with that person and you can be genuinely intimate. And now with the pandemic, you know, can you do that over Zoom? Sort of. Um, and then can you get to a place of real trust with this person when you do meet in person and is that person then willing to make changes in their own life when they're not seeing you so that they don't bring something back to you. Like in a way I felt like it sort of ratcheted up the speed. Like you needed to get intimate really quickly with someone if you were gonna do it or I would need to at least as an immunocompromised person because I would need that person to change their life in ways that might feel significant to them. So ultimately I just stopped. Uh, dating that's on pause for me now um but you know I mean I think as an immunocompromised person like it's been interesting because I think for a while at least I don't know that everyone is still feeling this way at this point in the pandemic but it was interesting to see people who are non-disabled or who are you know otherwise healthy thinking about their health status every day because that's something that as a person living with chronic illness, I do multiple times a day, every day. So, you know, I think in some ways it was sort of natural to think about it the way that I did, but in other ways, I think it was just as different and new and stressful as it was for everyone else.
Charcot Marie Tooth, you've been talking a little bit about its implications. Um, uh, can I ask what is it, and and when did you actually realise that there was a name, perhaps, to changes and experiences that you were encountering in your life? Yeah. So um, Charcot Marie Tooth is a neuromuscular disease that affects the distal limbs, so the lower arms and hands and the lower legs and feet primarily. Um, And that's because it affects the very long nerve cells in our body. And so those are the longest ones that go to the ends of your hands and feet. All of your nerves have a coating called myelin. It's kind of like the coating on a wire and it carries brain signals to your muscles. Um, That nerve coating in me disintegrates and we don't know why, and we don't know what stops that. So it affects the nerves primarily and kind of the muscles secondarily, because once the muscles don't get the signals from the brain, then you can't move them the way that they're intended to move. And so they can atrophy, which is what has happened for me at this point. I was diagnosed when I was 19, which is 21 years ago. Wow, that's so long. (laughs) And At the time I was a freshman in college, it was between the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of college. But at the end of my freshman year of college, I was walking to class across campus and I would just face plant. And I didn't know why I was tripping. Um, I was having trouble getting dressed, like buttoning my clothes. I was having trouble taking notes in class. I was having trouble tying my shoes. And I knew that I knew how to do these things. So, in that summer between my freshman and sophomore years of college, I had a lot of doctor appointments, I had a lot of tests, and ultimately was diagnosed with Charcot-Marie Tooth. There are many subtypes of Charcot-Marie Tooth, but we don't know what kind I have. After a lot of genetic testing in 2020, I had my whole exome sequenced, trying to answer this question, but we don't know if I even have Charcot-Marie Tooth. It just looks like Charcot-Marie Tooth from the outside. So we're calling it that because it makes sense. And I do have some genetic mutations that are associated with types of CMT, although no one can really decide if I have those type, that type or if I have something else that is specific to only me. So, you know, that affects me in that Um, my fingers on my hands have some contractures, so they're curled up a little bit and it's hard for me to straighten all of my fingers out. Um, And then I also have foot drop, which means that I can't lift up the front part of my foot. So I don't walk heel to toe. I walk because I can lift up the top part of my leg and then I can set the bottom down. So walking for me is kind of like marching is the best way to describe that. Being able to name something feels like a form of control. And it sounds as if most recently, the ability to be certain that you can name something is in doubt. But I wonder if at 19, there was some degree of comfort in being able to put a name to an experience. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really helpful to have a diagnosis because even if the diagnosis like CMT has no real treatment you know, there's nothing that you can do to stop it or reverse it. Still, you know, or at least you have an idea of what it is and what to expect. And I think for me, that was really important. And that's really been why I've wanted to continue to try to nail it down. Because I just want to know, you know, if X happens, 
is it because of this or is it because of something else? And as a person with a constellation of health issues, you know, I kind of like to attribute things to specific things, but I also am learning that sometimes things just happen and you have to just keep going. CMT itself is very slow progressing. And at the beginning when I was diagnosed, I was kind of able to relearn how to do some things. And I was able to walk unassisted for a very long time for someone with CMT. And so for a while, you know, it was really an invisible disability, which is that I felt it when I was walking and trying to be upright, but other people who would be looking at me may not necessarily have thought, oh, that woman is disabled. Um, whereas now I use a walker full time um, and I think it's a lot more visible. You are not your health conditions. None of us are our health conditions. We, we happen to live our lives with whatever bodily conditions we, we have. I'm wondering, having noted that broader context, the degree to which you, through your life, have felt seen as a complete human or perhaps um, segmented into components that people choose to see. And, and maybe, you know, this is a long, a long question, but also thinking about how invisible perhaps you felt like not being seen. I'm just wondering how you feel about the sense of identity you have and the sense of identity that is attributed to or at you, if you're seen at all. You know, that's a good question. And there are a lot of different ways to answer that. I think for me, in terms of identity, you know, one way that I've always explored you know, my identity as the person with chronic illness has been through my writing um, because it has really given me experiences that not everyone has. You know, some of those experiences, clinical experiences are very strange and also very beautiful in these very weird ways. Um, the first collection of poetry that I had published is a small chapbook of sonnets that I wrote to doctors and other healthcare professionals that I had encountered who performed tests on me or who tried to create braces for me. I'm happy to say that the bracing process has evolved from where it was 20 years ago, because for a while it was like, we're gonna boil a piece of plastic in some water and then like wrap it around you um, and Velcro it on. And that's like a weird intimate experience where you're very close to someone who's doing a really strange thing. And so, you know, being in scenarios like that, I was able to take those experiences and look at them from different perspectives or from more of an artistic perspective, I guess, saying, you know, what is strange and beautiful about this thing that happened? And I think that that's helped me keep a perspective on it where I have always felt like, whatever is happening, I can find what is beautiful about it. And I think, you know, in terms of other people seeing me, you know, I think for so long, people didn't see that I had a disability. So sometimes I would hear comments from people like, I've always had accessible parking, like when I was driving still. So I would park in the handicapped spot and I would hang up my tag and I would go in. And sometimes people would say like, that's for real disabled people. And I was like, well, I am that, like, you don't know the concentration I'm putting into not falling down right now. Um, 
So there was some of that. And then I think once I became more visibly disabled and now people see me and they can see the walker, I encounter ableism in a, a, a much more regular way now. And a lot of it is well-intentioned. You know, people don't really know what that is. It's interesting to consider the ways I feel seen or not seen, because I think a lot of times now I feel seen as a feeble person, but that's not really the case. I mean, I guess if you want to get down to brass tacks, like, am I a fall risk? Sure. But I don't think that, you know, day to day, that's really how I think of myself. But people will see me like every time I get in an Uber, nine out of 10 times, the Uber driver asks me why I have the walker or what it's for. And we'll phrase it in like ways like, did you recently have surgery? One person asked me fairly recently, what did you do to your legs? I was like, nothing. <laughs> I don't think I did it. Did I do something on the way from my apartment to the car? Because I don't think I did. And I think people don't think about the way they ask those questions or whether or not that's appropriate. You know, when we're thinking about how we are appropriate in public, that's not something we think about. Because if I just randomly went up to a person while I was getting the mail and said, hey, did you recently have surgery? Like, that's not appropriate. But because I have a walker, it makes it okay to ask questions like that or to say things like that. You know, that has added kind of a new layer when I think about my own identity, because it took me a while to become okay with being disabled and to say, it's really fine. My body is exactly the way that it's supposed to be. And that's not wrong. And it's not not normal to be disabled. There are many, many disabled people in the United States and around the world. It is actually quite normal to be disabled. And we don't think of it that way, but that's the truth. And I genuinely believe that now, but I do still have to, you know, grapple with how other people see me. And so sometimes there are doubts about that. And I have to struggle sometimes to find like, what is the beautiful thing here? Like, how do I take this experience that I'm having with this person and, you know, find what is good or useful or what can be highlighted from it? Vitamins and history books Psychology and a different way to look at it all Cause my perspective is broken If suffering's a way to earn your I better start putting miles on my feet But I'm so tired of wandering don't mind me asking but so far you've talked about I think more broadly how society encounters and addresses you and how you encounter society I'm wondering the degree to which 
CMT is hereditary, is a family-based condition. I'm wondering what has been the journey of those that are really lovingly close to you? Do your parents feel some kind of guilt? Uh, you're not an only child, so you have family beyond yourself. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, those emotional and psychological responses, I would imagine, are much more fraught over the 40 years of your life. So I'm just wondering how they've had to journey, not with CMT, but alongside you. Yeah, I mean, it's hereditary. So in all of the genetic testing that I've had done, my parents have also participated in that so that we can figure out where it comes from. So we know that I got it from my dad. My dad has apologized to me many, many, many times. And I have always said to him every time he said he's sorry, are you sorry that I'm here? And he says, no, of course not. And I said, neither am I. And that's really, I think, at the end of the day, what that's about. Like, we didn't know. They didn't know. CMT, you know, as a genetic disease, Genetic diseases can manifest differently in every person who has them. So, you know, it's why I have CMT, but other people I know who have CMT look different from me. They use different mobility aids than I do, or they don't use any at all. No one could have known, even if my parents knew that my dad was a carrier, they would have had no way of knowing how that would have progressed in me. Or in my sister, because my dad is the carrier, then, you know, genetically speaking, my sister is a carrier as well. And it, it didn't, you know, manifest in her. It's like in me, it's more of a recessive thing. And it just came out. And that's how it worked. I think my parents and probably my sister as well all experienced some guilt that that was happening to me. And in a way that, you know, no one else in the family was affected. So I think for a time, you know, all of us kind of didn't really accept it as something real, especially in the beginning, because it didn't seem like it was that big of a thing. Um, and for a long time, I was able to move and drive and do everything that everyone does. And it didn't really seem like it was a big factor. And then, you know, in my mid thirties, walking just became more difficult to do. My balance is really poor. I really needed something to lean on because I was leaning on every wall, sofa or chair bag or person that I was near when I was trying to move around. And so I had to accept that I needed to start using a walker. When I had to start using the walker and when I had to stop driving, that was about the same time. And that was the hardest point in the disease journey for me. And I think it was probably the point where we all had to accept the reality of where it was going. Because, you know, when you are diagnosed with CMT, people will say, you may end up having to use a wheelchair, but maybe not, because we don't really know. We don't know enough about the disease to know how it's going to progress at what rate or to what extent. It is kind of, you have a name for what this is, and this is the disease mechanism and how it works, but we don't really know what to tell you about the entirety of your future. You know, I think of course we hoped that I wouldn't need to use mobility device, but it ended up that I did need to use one. And I took it to Omaha Bicycle Company, which is now closed, but I've taken every walker there and they made them all really cute and stylish. And to me, that was important because it helped me accept it as a part of my identity. 
And I think that that helped my family accept it too. Over time, like I've had to have more serious conversations with my family individually about how I felt or about, you know, what it was like. And I think that they became open to that, but I do think it took probably a solid 15 years before we had those conversations. The walker helped us have those conversations. Interesting how an external device, a piece of equipment manifests something so visceral within us. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, I think culturally we have an idea about disability as a terrible thing. When we see it in movies or in the media, we see it as something that either has to be overcome or as something that makes life not worth living. I mean, there are many movie depictions of people becoming disabled and then committing suicide. I think that that is really damaging because when you become disabled, you know, that is not always the end of your life. You know, some people become disabled quite young or are born that way and have a whole life to live and should and can do all of the things that people do. And I've done so many of those things. I think if we're able to look at the device as something that allows us to do those things and helps us to do those things, and we just reframe our attitudes about that, I think that would be a lot more beneficial to people who become disabled, but also I think for people who are not disabled to see someone who's using that device and not think what's wrong with that person or what happened to that person or how is that person less than, but instead just saying, you know, there's a person with a walker, you know, it can just be a neutral thing. Like I don't, you know, ask people, why do you have brown hair? You know, why are you wearing those shoes? Like, it's really, I think if we could look at it like that, instead of, you know, a marker of something that was lost or something that is different in a negative way, then I think when people do need those tools, they would be more willing to accept them. My dad recently had to start using a walker full time. And I hope that what I went through with my walker helped him a little bit in that process. He did seem more open to it. Um, but he was sending me photos of various walkers. Like, what do you think about this one? What are your thoughts on this one? And then we agreed on one together. And, you know, for me, that was a cool process to see. And I think if people could look at it more like that, then it wouldn't feel so othering to have to start using those sorts of tools. I know that you work at the Atlantic and I think, wow, that seems so 
cool and I, I imagine it must be sort of an aspirational part of your career success. And then I wonder, am I just over-imagining this? From your perspective, you know, how do you feel about you know, working with The Atlantic magazine? You know, every day when I log on to work, I have the same feeling you have. This is so cool. And I sort of can't believe that this is my job. So <laughs> I think, yes, for me, it was definitely aspirational. I mean, I've been in journalism for a long time. I've done a lot of reporting. I've done a lot of writing. I've done lots of editing. I've always really loved copy editing. Uh, I'm good at it. And it makes sense to me. I really like taking a sentence and making it right. You know, when it comes to controlling things in the world, there is one thing I know I can do and I can make a sentence make sense. So that's always been a thread through all of the journalism work that I've done. And, you know, I was just during the pandemic, I was happy with the work that I was doing at MDA, but, you know, a lot of companies and businesses were hit hard during the pandemic, including lots of nonprofits. And it was just a very uncertain time. Um, still is an uncertain time. You know, I just was looking to see what was out there and I saw the post for the job and I thought, wow, that would be so cool. And they will never call me. Then I applied and then they called and I was like, are you sure? It was great. I did, you know, some tests, which is very typical for copy editing jobs. And I talked with a lot of people and it's a magazine that is doing, I think, such important journalism at a time when we really need journalism. I, I feel like that's maybe something that a lot of people would raise their eyebrows at hearing because I think there are so many divisive attitudes about journalism and what it is um, and what journalists do. But ultimately, you know, journalism is about telling people stories that connect us all. You know, if we don't know what's happening with other people, we don't know how it's affecting us. But the reality is that the things that are happening to the people in our communities and even to people halfway around the world do affect us. They actually have real effects on our lives day to day. We can't do anything about that or make anything better or even decide that we want to or need to make anything better if we don't know that that's happening. So we really need stories and it is just incredible to be someone who gets to read those kinds of stories every day and get paid to do it. I got really lucky. It's not a secret that mainstream media is really challenged by both market sort of business forces. And you also mentioned the sort of partisanship of, um, of the world, not least you know, wrought by the changes of the internet and so on and so forth. Um, do you have feelings about the future for what I would think of as vigorous, diligent, and reputable journalism? You know, I've thought about this a lot because it is something that I think as journalists, we are contending with every day because there's just a lot of stuff out there that exists. And you know, when you're doing good work and you want that good work to get to people, you have to cut through all that stuff. And you also have to cut through all the attitudes about the stuff. So I think, you know, our task is to continue to, first of all, to continue to find the stories that matter, the stories that really need to be told. We need to tell them well. 
which those two things on their own can be kind of difficult. And I think, you know, we get sort of lost sometimes in, you know, superficial stories. Um, but when we find those stories, then, you know, we have to continue to find new and creative ways to get those stories to people. Um, so, you know, I think that we're working on that. I think that there are a lot of people who are, you know, trying to come up with more innovative ways to make journalism accessible to people. And I think that that's part of the key, you know, it's always part of the deal with journalism, you know, the lead of your story, the first paragraph is the most important thing. And when you're in journalism school and you're learning how to become a reporter, you focus a lot on the lead because if you don't hook someone with the first paragraph of the story, then you're probably gonna lose them. And then all that work that you did reporting and writing might be for nothing. So, you know, I think our challenge is to just continue to create really good leads. It's difficult in this moment, but I know that it's happening every day. It's happening every day where I work. It's happening every day where other journalists I know are working. And so I think if people can continue to be open to that and continue to, you know, not say, oh, that's a mainstream publication. And so I'm not going to look at that. Like, it's really an attitude adjustment that culturally we need to figure out how to tackle. It would be great if if there was something you wanted to read. Um, sure. Do you have any requests? Well, I will say that I thought number seven was extremely amusing. I have very many tagged in my copy, so... I could read seven. This week, when he told me to stop, to think of nothing at all, he paused, then said, to imagine it worked. See how it would look, he said. See what you'd be doing. After, he asked what I saw. I said nothing. We'll do it again, he said. We'll practice. You'll see. His wrist is resting on her knee and he's leaning forward. And I wish I knew that weight, his shoulder blades curving away from me, blue striped and familiar as the sound of his discoveries, the angle of his neck in thought, the little string tied around his wrist. If it was my knee, if it was my knee. After you say, I'm delightfully proportioned, I say, maybe on a good day, and you tilt your head and ask me whether my proportions change. I could say, today in a meeting, my mouth went small, no bigger than a pencil's fleshy pink eraser, or that today I face the wind in every parking lot until the gas tank full, the groceries bought and bagged. I breathed and breathed, and then my ribs became as big as two white houses, my lungs, two hearths, or I could tell the truth, 
that in the bathroom between one and two, I watched my right eye grow and grow until beside it, saucers and then moons became the smallest pearls. I tried to swell it shut. I tried to make a fist, make my heart bigger, but I can't tell you even with my normal mouth, the proportions posed in this hard chair across from you. And so I just say maybe on a good day and you get the joke. Thank you so much for reading those. Yeah, of course. Thank you. My guest today has been poet, writer, and editor, Lindsay Ann Baker. Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been so great. Terrible name. Like when you hear you have graves to see, it's like, wow, thanks. Is that what this is leading? <laughs> um. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. I don't know if that's the end. I don't believe that I'm done with it yet. Thank you.